died on the 14th of March 1883, so hardly 65 years. And uh, it was something that ran through his entire life, which was a commitment to humanity. That I think that's the easiest way of putting it. Um, when he was a very young man of 17, he writes an essay on the uh, reflections of a young man in the church of a career. Then he makes the point that one could be a great scientist, a great sportsman, a great leader, whatever. One could be great in so many respects. But if a person had spent the greater part of his life making a lot of people happy, then he would have been happy in the process himself. And on his uh, ashes will fall the tears of noble people. The young, young 17-year-old saying this, you're not a Marxist yet. But in a sense, this element of human concern underlies all of Marx's work. So in fact, 30 years later, in uh, 1867, 1835, 1867, he writes a letter to his friend in New York saying, I haven't written to you for a while. And I've been, it's been a difficult time for me. My, you know, my kids, I've lost my kids. My wife has been unwell, but finally the damn thing is done. Meaning, of course, that's capital. And then he says, that, look, there are people who come and tell me, wise men who come and tell me to be practical. But if I had not finished this volume one of Capital and sent it to the press, for me, that would have been impractical. And then he adds a line or two saying, um, of course, one can be an ox and turn one's back on human suffering. And essentially, the implication is that that's not what he would like to be. He's a man of concern, concern with humanity. I think this is all of us are motivated, all of us have joined together today in this group, or motivated by the desire to make the world a better place for the vast majority of human beings. And that, I think, is what unites all of us, whatever uh, you know, individual views on specific events and developments around us that we might have. I like the room for considerable variation. I think what unites all of us is this commitment to see a better world and to be able to see that not just through just wishful idealism, but through some rigorous analytical understanding. I think that's what, for me, uh, that's what drew me to Marx. I, I came to Marx in a very different way. I am basically an engineer who strayed into economics in the US and then found that the mainstream uh, classes didn't offer me an explanation for the world around me. This is the time of Vietnam War and US imperialism at its height, the late 60s. And my doctoral program in economics offered very little to help me understand this world. And I think that's where I after reading a lot of mainstream economists and then some alternate economists, I moved to Marx. That's a, personally, that's how I got into it. I can honestly say that reading Capital as part of a study cycle of about 12 people in the spring of 1970 essentially changed my life. And that's also why that was in 1974. So I'm still there 50 years later talking about Marx and talking about Capital. And that's the you can imagine the amount of impact it's had on my life. I'm sure that most of you who read Capital carefully will uh, be influenced by it in many more ways than you may yourself be always aware. So with that preface, we can start. Now, Marx and Engels, of course, both of them together. In a sense, you know, even Capital, Engels has a role, important role to play in it. Marx and Engels basically have a standpoint which we've, uh, you know, called Marxism. And there, there are, of course, obviously, it's a, it's a very vast subject. But what I'd like to emphasize is that Marx starts with some very basic assumptions. And these actually differentiate him from mainstream economics or mainstream social sciences so fundamentally. Because with the rise of capitalism, most mainstream social sciences start with the individual. Marx does not. Marx starts with society as a whole and the effort to understand. And the other thing is that Marx, mm, you know, his, his method has been called many things. I mean, 
philosophy that he has adopted is what we call dialectalism. And its specific application to the study of human history is what we broadly call historical materialism. And what I want to do in this lecture, I don't know how effective that will be, you'll have to go back and read the material I've sent you, um, is to try and kind of uh, get you to see the basic methodological approach of Marx. Okay, we can call it, first of all, fundamentally materialism. Okay? That's, that's number one. That is to say, Marx uh, puts it in this way. I mean, the, the text of Marx that you might want to read along with uh, what I have sent you. This is the chapter called General Introduction. General Introduction in Marx's Grundrisse. This is the book that is edited by Martin Nicholas and published in 1973. And the general introduction that Marx writes in Grundrisse has a longish section on the method of political economy. So essentially, what what is this historical materialism that we talk that we you know ascribe to Marx? What does it say? Again, one can you know spend a whole course teaching historical materialism, but just very quickly for that, um, it makes certain observations which, if you reflect on it, make a lot of sense. One that for human beings to exist, they must produce. Without production, you can't. And in fact, what distinguishes the human species? essential from all other species is that we produce our means of existence. Now, this means, first of all, that Marx places a central emphasis. The centrality of human species and its uniqueness lies in this, that we produce our own means of existence. Now, what exactly does this mean? What is the implication of this? What does production mean here? Obviously, it means that, you know, we engage in conscious and purposive activity vis-a-vis -vis nature around us, and we transform nature through our conscious purposive activity of labor. So again, Marx plays a central, I mean, places the central emphasis on labor, and not just labor of any kind, but conscious purposive activity as what defines and gives meaning as well to human existence. I mean, for example, he makes the point that, yes, you could have a, a you know, capital volume when he says you could have a bee that spins a wonderful web, far better than any architect can build a building elegantly, but as he says, what distinguishes the worst of architects from the best of bees is that the architect erects a structure in his imagination before he erects it in reality. In other words, Marx is saying that reflexive activity is one thing, but conscious purposive activity is what defines the human species. One, you know, one will, as one gets to know more and more about the universe, one might want to discuss that, but clearly uh, from this it follows that Marxist central emphasis in understanding human history is in terms of what is happening to this relationship between uh, human beings and nature. Now, clearly there are certain things that follow from this is that when human beings interact with nature, this is what production is all about. Production is basically transformation of what is there in nature by the use of human labor to produce various goods and services. Now, fundamental to this is the following point, that if you're engaging in production, as a society with nature, then in the course of producing and reproducing yourself, you are bound to transform nature. But not only are you bound to transform nature, you are also transformed in the process, not you individually, but the human society is engaged in production, is also transformed by this process of engagement with nature, interaction with nature. Because <clears throat> for one thing, all productive activity that human beings engage in generates new knowledge. And uh, therefore, you keep learning more and more about nature <coughs> as a human society. And you learn to transform it in numerous ways, <coughs> including in the process, developing the tools required to transform uh, natural materials into objects of use, and also developing the skill in the process to do so. Um, skills and you know learning the various kinds. So this is one part of it. When you look at production, 
one part of this discussion of production is the relationship between the society of human beings as a whole and nature. And I guess one generalization we can all accept is that over the long haul of human history, human societies have learned to understand nature more and more and use its power to transform nature around them and to create more and more productive power. In other words, uh, if you want to call it productive forces, you can say one generalization which one can make with some degree of certainty about human history is that the long haul of human history is a story of the growth of productive forces. That's one part. But obviously when human beings engage in nature, it's not as individuals as they do. It's very important because especially in modern capitalist society, and if you may look at mainstream social sciences, mainstream economics included, they always start with the individual. But the whole point is that no individual exists in isolation. No production occurs in isolation. Throughout human history, production has occurred always in and through society, which means that there must be specific social range governing the process of production and reproduction of a society. So in human society, there is no such thing as isolated labor, you know, completely apart from everybody else. I mean, I always give the example of how if you ever think should imagine somebody on top of a mountain fishing in a stream all alone and no human being around, it would still not be the case that that human being is performing purely individual labor because the tools that he or she uses, clothes they wear, all of these have come from the labor of others around them as well as the person himself. So all production in society results from the collective labor of humans. And therefore, there is always, in other words, uh, production is always social in nature. It is production in and through society. Never the Robinson Crusoe kind of fable of an individual confronting the world, producing all the Aindra notion of that matter. Yes, clearly Marx is therefore emphasized both the critical role of production in defining the human species. That is, production means conscious purpose of human activity, transforming nature. And in the process, the way that human beings get transformed themselves, this dialectical process of both transforming nature and being transformed by your interaction as a collective human species. At the same time, Marx is also talking about how production is always in and through society, never an isolated act. So if, to sum up the point that we've just made, one can visualize the society in existence uh, in terms of the level of development of that society in relation to its productive power. To what extent does that society uh, understand the laws of nature and has learned to transform it? To what extent has it developed the tools to transform nature? To what extent has it developed the skills of its laboring population? And how are they organized in society in order to enable this to occur? So the social division of labor, forms of cooperation, tools, stock of scientific and technical knowledge, all these together determine the extent or to which a society can transform nature for its purposes. You can call this broadly the level of development of productive forces, if you like. Because in modern days, we tend to summarize all this in terms of, you know, output per unit of labor. That's what an economist will talk about, productivity of labor. But much more than that, this is basically the extent of scientific and technical knowledge that a society possesses about nature and the skills of its laboring population and the tools that it has developed to transform nature with the understanding that it has got. And therefore also the social arrangement. Now, I think this is where we look at two aspects of production. One, the relationship between human society as a whole and nature, which can be captured by the notion of productive forces. The level of development of productive forces tells you to what extent a particular human society has you know, learned uh, to transform nature through a process of understanding it uh, through its own experience. The other aspect is that since production is always social in character, it's never an isolated act of an individual, people must necessarily 
enter into specific social arrangements for production to occur. Because, you know, obviously you don't produce just for production's sake. So if you look at a functioning society or an ongoing society, we talk about production, which then gets distributed across all the participants in production. Then how it gets exchanged, depending on what different people uh, locate in different places want or are able to obtain. And then once that process of production, distribution and exchange have taken place, then consumption, which is the logic of the whole system. You basically, uh, you need to consume in order to be able to survive. Consumption occurs and then that consumption then necessitates, makes necessary reproduction. So this cycle, production, distribution, exchange, consumption, reproduction. This is a cycle that every society has to necessarily you know go through it's there it's part of any society so the question that comes is on the one hand one can talk about the extent to which the society has understood nature and learned to transform it created the tools for it developed the skills for it and so on would that be talking about productive forces equally important is the social arrangements of production um, basically you can you can uh, you know concretize this notion of uh, social arrangements of production uh, into various aspects for example one can ask the question is production only local is this a small you know territory within which production distribution exchange and consumption take place is there a direct relationship between production and consumption or is production such that the products travel over a vast territory, much vaster than the location where production takes place. So, for example, this would be a modern capitalist society, clearly, is an example where uh, production is not for a local market, so a whole world, right? You could have production for a local community, which will involve people doing different things, there being a division of labor, but not necessary. The products are bought and sold in a market. That is not necessary. So, uh, what we see, what we are familiar with, in the modern world, things are bought and sold, is not necessary and has not been a feature of all of history. For example, if you look at the ancient Indian villages, there is the argument that there is a whole Jajmani system and so on. There's a clear division of labor, people are doing different tasks. I mean, in, the, in this case, it's determined by caste system. But at the same time, products don't become a commodity. They don't get bought and sold all over the place. So, you know, one can have different social arrangements. The more important question could be, for example, not so much whether all production immediately gets consumed, but something like who controls the process? Who's the boss? Very simply. And there, you know, the point that very important point that Marx made, uh, that historical materialism emphasized, is that since productive forces keep growing, inevitably, why? Because as human beings engage in production, they necessarily learn more and more about nature. They learn to transform it in better ways, in, in, in produce more and more of various things. And as a result, productive forces necessarily grow through history. It's not a matter of choice, it's not a subjective choice that we are making, a voluntary choice. The very pro act of production, as it takes place in and through society, leads to the growth of productive forces. So clearly, this growth of productive forces will at some point have a very important consequence. I'll come to that in a minute. But the social arrangements of production, Marx calls this production relations, relate to who controls the social production process. What is the relationship between the actual producer and the output or the actual producers and the means of production that they use? Because in different periods of history, there will be different means of production that people work with, different skills of labor that emerge and so on. So one could ask a whole lot of questions concerning the manner in which production is organized in society. Manner in which production, distribution, exchange, consumption and reproduction take place in a society. These social arrangements is broadly what Mark calls production relations.
Now, at any point in time, you have a functioning society. So you, you can say that you have a certain level of development of productive forces and an associated set of social arrangements for carrying on production year after year. You could call this combination, theoretically, we're not, we're not talking about actual society anywhere concretely immediately, but any in the process of conceptualizing a society at a theoretical level, you can look at something called the mode of production. A particular combination of forces and relations that constitutes a mode of production. Now, the real concrete society, which we typically call a social formation, will be, of course, more complex. For example, if we take a society like India, India is not an example of a pure quote-unquote, pure capitalist mode of production. Even now, half your workforce is self-employed. I mean, their self-employed activity may be subordinated to the logic of capitalist production. But strictly speaking, the self-employed people are not in a wage labor relation, wage labor capital relationship. There are parts of India where pre-capitalist relations prevail or even or much earlier tribal communal relations prevail. So any concrete social formation may have in it features or characteristics of more than one mode of production. But for us, the relevant theoretical category is the mode of And when we say mode of production, we say we are referring to a society with a particular combination of forces and relations of production. Now, this is the broad, you know, use this term. But let's come to something more, you know, important. What, what is Marx saying? Marx is saying the productive forces are growing all the time. Not as a matter of choice, of subjective choice, voluntary choice, but inevitably. As human beings engage in production, they necessarily learn more and more about nature and they develop the tools to deal with it. And this keeps enhancing their power to transform nature into objects of use for them, but also in the process change human beings themselves, increases the stock of knowledge, understanding. So this inevitable growth of productive force has a very important implication. That means at a point in time, remember society which is at in some kind of stability, some kind of equilibrium if you like, if you're, you know, want to use the standard you know, framework of mechanics and, and physics. You can say that at a point in time, a society is equilibrium, but will it always be there? It can't be. For the simple reason, that even as it seems to be in equilibrium, productive forces are growing. And as they grow, they will inevitably create a situation where production relations have to change in order to be consistent with, compatible with the new level of development of productive forces. So periodically, in say periodically not years, so epoch in human historical development, different social arrangements come into existence, organized production and reproduction as a result of the growth of productive. In other words, the one first one universal common generalization is that in the long haul of human history, productive forces keep growing. This is number one. This is something that is a matter of you know what history has taught us. Second, that when this kind of growth of productive forces occurs, it will lead to changes in the arrangement of production. I mean, Marx gives some very simple examples, like say, society with a handmill is a, is a feudal society, and society with a modern mill is a, is a society with a capitalist. Of course, we can we can see this in our own lifetime that as methods of production change, as productive forces grow, then ways in which production is organized. And the role of different participants in society in production keeps changing. So production relations that keep changing. Production relations relate to many things. Relate to the question of ownership of the means of production, control over the production process, forms of division of labor, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, what are we saying? We're saying that over a period of time in a human society, things can't stay the same. Productive forces keep growing. As a result, at some point, the existing arrangement of production the existing production relations have to give way to a new set of relations of production which is conducive to the further growth of productive force. This is this in a sense we are saying that the relationship between forces of production and relations of production <coughs> is one which 
is characterized by two as one at any point in time in a society there has to be some consistency between the force relations of production in other words there has to be a relationship unity between forces and relations of production at the same time since productive forces keep growing they will inevitably come into conflict with the existing relations of production and lead to the transformation of the relation in other words the relationship between forces of production and relations of production is characterized by both unity and contradiction unity because in order for a society to exist there has to be some compatibility between forces on the other hand for societies to grow there will be a contradiction between forces and relations so in a sense you can say that the unity between productive forces and relations of production is temporary and transitory the contradiction between forces and relations of production is fundamental and it's what drives the transformative society the words human historical development is driven by the constant growth of productive forces and therefore the ensuing contradiction between the productive forces and production relations leading periodically to social revolutions and new ways of organizing societies production and reproduction so this may seem a little abstract at this point in time but as we go along especially when we discuss capitalism then it will be a little more concrete as we go along but today in this lecture it's still quite abstract i realize that but reading that chapter of mine will help you concretize it a bit more let me let me now go to a second point which is in the very early stages of human existence humanity must have found it very difficult to survive human societies such as existed at that time would have found it very because after all you knew very little about nature its forces uh, and you you know many human groups must have just disappeared entirely process but as they keep engaging in production and as the productive forces grow you will reach a point where the human society is able to reproduce itself and to survive and gradually with productive forces rising point is reached when the society is not only able to reproduce itself at a given level of existence that then provides historically but also to produce more than what is required to reproduce in other words the concept of a sub over and above what is required for reproduction of a system is very crucial in our understanding of human history and this concept of a surplus is linked to the growth of productive force as productive forces keep growing at some point those human societies which have now got to this point will find that there is a surplus over and above what is required to continue society's reproduction in the old way now this is interesting this is inevitable because productivity keep growing therefore at some point there will be a surplus you know you can think of uh, sorry you can think of i sorry i lost you are you able to hear me can you hear me hello yeah because i got lost in a minute yeah okay something happened to my screen so i was wondering okay let, let me let me come back to this point it's a bit abstract especially it's not visual and i have to tell you all this is some strange voice um a point arises in human historical development when human society is able to guarantee its survival but not just that to be able to produce a surplus over and above that in the early stages when human societies were not at this point but lived a very precarious existence it would have been the case that everybody who is able bodied would have had to participate in the process of production maybe hunting and gathering societies very very low level of technique and so on there everybody would have had to chip in the the luxury of not working have been available except for you know people very 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 small children near term mothers very old people and so on all able bodied persons would have had to work and production would also have been largely a collective process because people would have had to band together and live as groups to survive vis-a-vis -vis nature vis-a-vis -vis other animals and so on so in such societies there was no question of a sub but gradually as your ability to produce and transform nature uh, 
increases and the tools to develop their own. A point comes when a human society is able to produce more than what is required to reproduce itself at the given, historically given level of existence. Now, this is an interesting point, you see, because logically, as productive forces grow and society reaches a point where a surplus can be generated in relation to the then levels of existence. The rise of a surplus resulting from the growth of productive forces creates a logical possibility. And what is the possibility? Possibility that once the surplus has emerged, it's clear that you can have two ways of dealing with it. One that, you know, everybody gets a bit more than they used to get or that some people can cease working because if you cease working, the others will still produce enough and there'll be a surplus with which you can survive. So if you can, if a small group in society can somehow capture the control of the process of production and reproduction, then they can actually make the rest of society work for them and the surplus that arises can be used for their own. Now, obviously, this is a purely logical possibility. The emergence of a surplus makes possible logically at this point. I'm still not coming to the historical part of it. But the emergence of a surplus through the growth of productivity creates a logical possibility that one, some subset of the population need not work any longer but can live off the labor of society. Obviously, nobody is going to, you know, voluntarily do this. But clearly, the logical possibility exists. How does it get translated? That's a very, very complex question. But for example, uh, one way to visualize this would be in very early human um, society, there would have been, you know, clashes over resources among neighboring human uh, groups in such early battles of very early society that would have been no incentive to take prisoners of war. You kill the enemy, you win, you acquire that uh, territory and more resources. You might, I mean, very early days there might have been cannibalism, so those who are defeated can also be killed and eaten. But leaving that possibility aside, there was no logic to capturing prisoners because the level of productivity, the growth of productive forces was such that they would have to work and you would have to work. But when society has advanced to the point where a systematic and regular surplus is possible, then the logic changes. So in, in the course of conflict among two human groups, the winning group can actually capture prisoners of war and make the prisoners work for them. In other words, in other words you can move from primitive collective society where production was done in common, distribution was done in common, survival required collective activity and collective uh, you know, ownership of some primitive kind, you move to a society where you can actually enslave fellow human beings in the course of a conflict and make them work for you. Historically, if you look at human societies, uh, you know that most of the early civilizations were river valley civilizations. Now, this is understandable because these kinds of irrigation, the discovery of agriculture, the invention of agriculture, obviously makes agriculture far more fertile and then uh, there exists a huge possibility of generating surpluses continuously more or less year after year, not sporadically but almost regular. So such societies obviously have it in them to generate a surplus and therefore also provide the potential for a society where people are divided by those who work and those who live off the work of others. Rise of a surplus gives rise to the logical possibility that one subset of the population, by virtue of its control over the process, can make the rest of society work and live off the labor of others. In other words, society can be divided into classes, broadly two classes those who labor, who work, and those who live off the labor or work of others. Exploiters and exploit. Ones who work are exploited, the ones who live off the labor of those who work are exploiters. Now, again, there are obviously preconditions for this to happen. It is not a uh, 
automatic that when a surplus arises, this must happen. But for it to happen, for this arrangement to come into existence, that is to say, the rise of a consistent surplus, that arises the division of society into two classes, those who work and those who live off the work of others. For that division, that class division, there must be certainly control over the process of production division by a subset of the population, which can then force others to work for. Initially, this might have happened in terms of slaves captured in war, which then gives the um, leading military personnel in a society more territory to cover and, and creates internal inequality in the group that wins a conflict. Fighting a group wins a conflict, manages to capture slaves, but then obviously those who lead these struggles, the chiefs, the warriors, they will get more of a access to resources. And over time, this can uh, create inequality within society. And moreover, the fact that in the course of growth of a class society, enslaving those who lose in a battle with you becomes legitimate, will also lead to a position where slavery per se gets legitimate and can be extended then to people of your own initial group. So I mean, this is not going into details here, but it's possible to visualize a process where slave societies could emerge from the early primitive collective society as a result of the growth of productive forces over time. Now, we're not particularly concerned with this right class. We're not going to be pursuing these matters, but I would just want to illustrate what could be the consequence of the growth of productive forces and the resulting generation of a surplus, namely that such a surplus could make possible a division of society into classes, broadly two classes, those who work and those who live off the work of others. Now, the basic conditions for this to happen, apart from the emergence of a surplus itself, would be that those who are in a position to make others work for them clearly must be having some hold. They can only do this if they control the process of production. And one of the obvious ways in which this control or production can be exercised is by ownership of the means of production. In other words, the rise of a class society is bound up with the emergence of private property in the means. Without private ownership of the means of it's not possible for me to exclude others from the means of production in society and thereby make them work for me so that I can live uh, through their labor. So for, for this class society to exist, there has to be the emergence of private property, the means of Now, obviously, even if you temporarily concede that, you know, it happens through war and you capture slaves and that's how you legitimize it and so on. It is clear that such a division of society into those who control production process and make others work for them and the mass who work, such a division cannot be the result of voluntary control. So obviously force would be needed not only to bring this about but also to sustain it. And in a sense you can say therefore that the moment you have a class society with this broad division of those who work and those who live off labor of others, you must also have a clear instrument of force which kind of uh, compels this social arrangement to continue. And that instrument of force is what we can in a word describe as the state. Obviously uh, the origin of the private property and the state are bound up together in this understanding. But importantly we should also understand that we are not saying that force alone sustains such a society. It is certainly true that force is used to create the situation where a small subset of the population controls the labor of the rest of the population. But it is also true that this arrangement cannot be sustained only through there will have to be modes of legitimation of this clear difference in growth that those some who work and there are this small set of people who live off the work of the other. Now how do you justify that? How do you legitimize it? So for example then 
ideology, politics, religion, literature. So many things have to come in in order to legitimize and sustain basic class differentiation between those who work and those who live off the work of others. This this basic division in society into two classes uh, requires, therefore, one, private property means of production, two, a state as an instrument of force, and three, various modes of legitimation of this arrangement where religion will play a role, literature, uh, all kinds of beliefs and customs and, uh, and so on. You know, so, you know, you have uh, a lot of the, you know, politics, actually, for example, the political sphere acquires importance when you have a state. And those who control the state are obviously in a position to control the working people. So this is whole process is only at this point in time used to make the logical point that the growth of productive forces can lead to class and class society will require instruments of force to sustain itself, instruments of repression, but it will also require instruments of legitimation, not merely only. Now, that's a broad framework. Now, uh, we're not going to try and, uh, you know, analyze here how different societies across the world change at various points in time. It's far too complex a uh, uh, job. But I think for the purpose of understanding uh, how Marx approaches human historical development, these elements are useful. That you have the growth of productive forces, which is not a matter of choice. It is a material necessity. It is something that inevitably occurs in the course of human existence. Then you have, as a result of the growth of productive forces, over a period of time, changes in the relation to production. And this contradiction between forces and relations of production uh, manifests itself in the form of struggle among social class. Uh, the growth in productive forces leads to a point where the relations of production change at some time. But one aspect is common to different class societies over the long haul of human history, however differentiated they might be in other respects, is this point that all these societies rest on the presence of an economic surplus, which is then the basis for enabling a section of society to live off the labor of others. But such arrangements will require the use of force in the, for example, in the nature of a state to sustain this arrangement. And uh, of course, you know, sooner or later, these arrangements all come under pressure as productive forces keep growing. I'm not getting into that 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 whole set of issues now. Um, in a sense, I mean, I, again, I mean, this, I'm trying to squeeze into a very short period of time a lot of things I said. That's why I urge you to go back and read the chat that I've sent you. So, and you can also read the texts that are important here. For example, some of you, if you're not familiar with Marxism at all, you might want to start with uh, uh, Lenin's Resources and Component Parts of Marxism. It's a very simple text uh, which talks about some of these aspects because Lenin there makes the point that there were three major uh, sources that Marx uh, you know, can be associated with in the course of developing his thinking. This is basically uh, German philosophy, French social, classical political economy, and, and Lenin explains these in a very simple way. Of course, very simple, so you can't just go with it, but you can learn a lot by reading those that very simple text of Lenin, Three Sources and Component Parts of Marxism. More useful, more deeper uh, thing would be reading Marx and Engels, the original, in German ideology, part one on Fireball, and they lay out the historical materialist uh, framework. I've done a lot of violence to it because it's a very short period of time that we have. And uh, you know, so we are not really going into all the nuance. But right now, um, all we need to say is that we recognize that there are certain incontestable facts about human historical death, which are comprehensible from a historical materialist standpoint. One is the inevitable growth of productive forces over the long haul. Second is the emergence of a surplus. And third, therefore, the possibility of class society. And fourth, therefore, the, the whole point that once classes emerge, 
and they have obviously you know opposite interests uh, the class that rules would like to stay there forever the classes that are being ruled would like to class in power so inevitably there are going to be class contradictions and these contradictions among classes reflects the contradictions between the growing productive forces and the extent relations of production so class struggles in a sense are also to be seen as the uh, concrete manifestations of the underlying dynamic of the contradiction between forces and relations but i don't want to build from this a kind of a uniform history across the world no the point is to understand that this is a very powerful tool that to understand the society uh, through contradictions that exist which then drive it in a certain direction that understanding is very important that's essentially what the sort of historical materialism teaches you that you must look at the uh, material basis of society and its relationship and see how the contradictions in society work themselves out now what we will be doing in the rest of this series of lectures and i think today i'm almost at the fag end of my one hour slot uh, is that we will go more or less systematically with marx in volume 1 of capital on the his analysis of the capitalist mode but you know this has been a very very uh, i would say very terse explanation today and so i will uh, suggest that you read some more material one useful book which is available on the net is in pdf pdf is um, also by National Book Agency published it. This is the book by a gentleman who was, you know, in the Marx Engels Institute, David Riazanov. Riazanov's book called Marx and Engels. Just called Marx and Engels. It's a biography of Marx and Engels. This is actually a biography that looks at the evolution of their thinking and places it in the historical context of the times they lived in. So, David Riazanov, Marx and Engels would be one useful reference. Um, another reference which is. even more easily readable and this is kind of a materialist tries to give a materialist understanding of economic history is uh, leo huberman h u b e r m a n riazanov's r i a z a david riazanov marx and engels and maybe this can be forwarded to you because i think i have forwarded it to um, azar earlier otherwise we can do it anyway so marx and engels and uh, leo huberman's man's worldly goods it's a very simple text it's a very simple to read and follow uh, but you will Of course, if you wish to, you know, go deeper into these matters, there's much more to read, and obviously there's much more of Marx and Engels themselves to read. The Manifesto is a clear example. One can read the Manifesto, and when one reads the Manifesto, one gets a feeling that one is talking about contemporary globalization. So that's the other, you know, kind of reading to do. So the habit of reading you can do before the next class. But uh, I want to, you know, finish the disclaimer because whatever we have done today is very, very terse, and I have not had a chance to explain things in great detail or put in all the nuances that are required. So it's a bit of a, a very simple overview, but it will do for the time being. But David Riazno, Marx and Engels, Leo uh, Kibun, man, you know, man's worldly good. Engels is, I mean, the really good text I read is Engels' Dialectics of Nature, but that, you know, I don't want to give you too many. Uh, Text in one go. Marx and Engels is by David Riaz now, but there is also German ideology part one on Feuerbach. Marx and Engels. There is a, I mean, there are several volumes. I think the Marxist dot org, Marxist dot org site and catch all of these classic. Um, I will leave it at that now today. Just about finishing my one hour. Uh, I'm not very comfortable with this. Not being able to see you guys and just talking. Complete one-way traffic. Uh, because you know, if I was there interacting with you, I would be able to then elaborate and clarify many points, which otherwise. seem rather abrupt in the way that i present but we we'll, this is not the first or last meeting we'll have more meeting we continue this maybe we will think once this period is over of regular physical meetings in class okay so i think i'm going to end there now as i have completed the one hour that we were 
lot. Hope that's okay. Please read. So I'm not suggesting that we have questions now. I would suggest that you read the first chapter of my book as well as some of the readings I've suggested. And then we can start the next day with answering or responding to questions that you might mail in in this video. Okay? Is that okay with people? Do I have your agreement on this? All right. Well, not for the recording.